ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. everybody and welcome to ticklish business i'm kristen lopez joined as always by emily edwards and this episode is very special because we don't really have a set topic but we do have a set interview and that is with the lovely and amazing maria cooper janice and her co-author bruce boyer thank you both for wanting to sit down and talk with us we are so appreciative thank you for your interest in our collaboration <laughs> On behalf of my father, thank you. Of course. You two have collaborated on a new book, Gary Cooper, Enduring Style, that's focused all about your dad and his role as, I would say, a style icon. I don't know if he would say that. Emily, would you agree? I don't think there's any question whatsoever, quite frankly. So (laughs) let's keep going. (laughs) But before... We get to our lovely and amazing guests. I do want to briefly remind everyone, if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should. We do all sorts of additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes, based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime, as well as our new series. But have you read the series looking at classic film literary adaptations? We also give out regular care packages of movies, gifts, let you guess on an episode. It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Of course, me and Emily are both authors. You can order both of our respective books wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art and amazing merchandise, all designed by Samantha Richardson and Terrence Hilt, featuring your favorite stars, including our ultra-popular Gene Kelly, Judy Garland, Makoko mugs. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. We're going to get to this amazing book and Gary Cooper. Maria and and Bruce, I want to ask a question I'm sure you've been asked billion times talking about this book, but what led you to want to tell this specific side of Gary Cooper's persona and career? I can easily talk about that. By the way, Kristen, I am not nearly as lovely and amazing as Maria. (laughs) No. I, I, I caught your introduction, and I'm not nearly as lovely and amazing. My interest at first was to write about Gary Cooper as a sartorial icon. I had written about several film stars, Fred Astaire, the rebel stars of the 1950s, in terms of their sartorial image. I had wanted to do a book about Gary Cooper in that way because He was a great sartorial image to men on the screen from the 1920s up through the 50s. For example, if you were to ask somebody like Ralph Lauren who his idols would be in terms of style, top of the list would be Gary Cooper. So Marie and I had a a mutual friend who introduced us. Maria graciously invited me around to talk about this. Then at one point, she said, would you like to look at some of the family photographs? I said, oh my God, I would love that. So she brought out a whole bunch of wonderful albums. I looked through them and my heart absolutely stopped because Photographs were just wonderful, and I knew that nobody had ever seen these before. 
and it completely changed my mind about what the book would be. I was just going to write some text, but when I saw the photos, I realized right away that the book had to revolve around these wonderful photos. So that's how that got started from my point of view. Maria, maybe you want to talk about your interest. I had done a book several years before called Gary Cooper Off Camera, A Daughter Remembers, which was much more like a personal diary. But again, thanks, God bless my wonderful mother, who was very busy behind her camera from 1933, the year my parents were married, all the way through. She kept this wonderful history of not only Gary Cooper and personal family life, but of the times in which we lived. And certainly, looking at it strictly from a, quote, style point of view, you can just see the evolution of how people dressed, their thoughts about what was casual, what was permitted where. When people ask about my father, of course, and the word style comes up quite often, I also did not want him to be pigeonholed, anything written about him, simply at that one-dimensional level of style, what did he wear, why did he choose that tie, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. because really in living our life, living the style of our life, it is a question of how we live. It was lifestyle. It wasn't only what you hung on your back. I was so excited when I met Bruce, and aside from his extensive knowledge, much greater than mine, about really the fashion industry and the men's fashion industry over the decades, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I thought, oh my God, this would be wonderful if we could collaborate and come up with a book that covered really the truth, that covered reality as it was. Yes, this is how Gary Cooper lived. This is how he dressed. He didn't have a stylist who dressed him. This was his own taste. Like it or not, there are a few wild ties, I question, <laughs> that the genesis of the book. When should we just give your viewers a teaser? Because I think this new edition of the book, the cover is so fantastic. Whenever we are following your lead. Now that you mention it, <laughs> the front and the back is a winner. It's a pretty swanky cover right there. I think it's a great cover. And the back is terrific, too, because talk about casual lifestyle. And these photos were shot by your mother, correct? The front cover was not. But even this back photo, your mom as a photographer is just, she's up there with Perel. That's an evocative image. I shoot stuff with my iPhone and it looks like an amateur with an iPhone. She looks like a professional who's been doing this her entire but life. Truly, there are some photos in here that are Richard Avedon for Diana Vreeland, levels yeah. of composition and photography that are just oh, absolutely are stunning. There are some, obviously. I mean, there's yeah. David Douglas Duncan photograph with Picasso, for instance, and our whole family. And there's the incredible Steichen photograph, which is jaw-dropping, if I can say that about my father. It's an amazing picture. picture of family snapshots and that level. I regret that I only have this on iPhone, so or rather my Kindle, so I'm not sure if it's going to show up when I hold it up. There's a photo of your father in Western Whale, just in Dungarees, which is an yes. absolutely incredible isn't, shot. Isn't that great? Yes. Levi should claim that. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Maybe I can jump here a minute when you mention that, because that's something to my mind that's very, very important. There's no other film star that I can certainly easily think of 
who wore both formal dress, tailored clothing, suits, tuxedos, and so forth. On the other hand, very casual dress, such as cowboy clothes, with equal finesse. Some Hollywood stars look great in jeans and cowboy boots and so forth, but they didn't wear formal clothing very well. And there were ones who wore formal clothing very well, but didn't look good in that kind of casual clothing. For example, one of my great sartorial icons, along with Gary Cooper, would be Fred Astaire. But Fred Astaire, he made one movie where he wore jeans and cowboy boots and so forth. It was just kind of ludicrous. I mean, he never should have done that, in my opinion. But Gary Cooper was able to wear almost anything he wanted with equal a plum. That's just absolutely rare in film. The closest today might be George Clooney. Yes. To my mind, and no disrespect to Mr. Clooney, not nearly with the masculine grace and the the natural grace and style that Gary Cooper had. I actually have a theory about all of that. I'll lay on the two of you, is that Gary Cooper grew up in the West at a time when the West was still the West. But then later, I think when he was, what, Maria, eight years old, he went to England? Yeah, a little bit older, but close enough. Yeah, and he went to a proper, what we would call a private school, but what the English call a public school. And he had to wear the tweed suit and the high collar. And then he came back and went to college here. So he had all of that experience of wearing completely different, what do I want to say, genres of clothing. That's why he really understood not only clothing, not only what he was doing in his own private life, but he really understood costume. Maria, you had mentioned to me at one time that he would wear his costumes around to break them in, and so he would feel natural in them. He absorbed when he was a youngster. In Helena, Montana of 19, 5, 6, 7, he absorbed a lot of what was around him. It wasn't only the cowboys and the ranch hands, but the American Indians were, some of his first childhood friends were really young Indian children. And I know his knowledge of the Indian culture, and that goes into how they dressed and their sense of color and their use of color. For them, not costumes, that was what they wore. My father absorbed that, and he made quite a few of his own clothes when he was younger. The Indians taught him. I still have a wonderful buckskin jacket with fringe and all of that, which he made himself. I remember you telling me that he made his own moccasins and and all sorts of things like that. Definitely. You guys bring up a lot of what is in the intro, Ralph Lauren's intro that he writes, which talks about how Gary Cooper is the one of the few icons that look just as comfortable in regular clothes as he did informal wear. I'm curious for you, Maria, because so often we as perpetual Turner Classic Movies fans who watch a lot of these movies, sometimes I'm assuming that the clothes of the 30s, 40s, 50s just have this added elegance, even the day-to-day wear. What kind of dresser was your dad when he was at home? How far afield was that from some of even the normal day-to-day costumes he would wear in his films. It was not that far afield. For instance, there'd be there times when we would go to Mexico, for instance, either for vacation or 
he was on location and the wonderful colored fabrics that were available, he would buy bolts of fabrics and he'd bring it home and then he'd take the fabric to Eddie Schmidt, the wonderful tailor in Beverly Hills, and ask them to make him some shirts in bright turquoise blue and that kind of incorporating native exuberance of clothing into a very nice fitted tuck it shirt or don't tuck it shirt. He was doing that way before that happened. He loved being in England and getting the clothes he got made, he had made for himself in England. He loved doing that. He adored it. He adored beautiful boots. He adored beautiful leather. He appreciated the details in fine clothing. How much of that do you think is linked to his artist's eye and the fact that he was quite an accomplished illustrator and artist? I would say a lot of that was innate and natural, natural to him. He had a very keen sense of awareness that certainly worked in any actor's favor. When you are aware of the person you're playing opposite, you're not just talking at them or acting at them. You're aware of who that person really is, which means very, very strong powers of observation. And my father had the ability to observe nature, human nature, (laughs) wildlife nature. He could sit for hours on a rock studying the animal life around him. And sometimes he would sketch it. He would study how a bird flies and he would draw pictures of the wing. He used to draw pictures for me of how a bird's wing works. And he could identify each category of feathers and what they did. It was talent, yes, natural artistic talent and a natural ability to really be aware of everything in his surroundings the human nature and nature, nature. Well, I know we were talking offline about this earlier, but a great example is something like the Fountainhead, where he's in these jeans, salt to the earth, literally based on a lot of the book, the beginning, and yet is still able to wear a three-piece suit. It's got both halves of that. Is there a movie for you where the multifaceted nature of your father as a style guru for audiences comes through the best? I don't think I can think of (laughs) one. (laughs) I mean, that isolates the changing characters. Maybe some of the earlier films made in the late 30s, early 40s, but I can't think of a film. Mostly I just wanted Um, to talk about The Fountainhead because I know you said you had uh, stories for that one. So I figured (laughs) great pivot into talking about The Fountainhead. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very short story. Ayn Rand wanted very much Warner Brothers to do the picture. She insisted that it be Gary Cooper who play Howard Rourke. She convinced Jack Warner to give a very lavish dinner party to convince Gary Cooper to take the part. This was told to me by a very close friend of ours in the business who was at the party. There was a garden and multiple tables with little votive lights and candles and stuff down in the garden. So the house was Spanish steps. There was almost, you could say, a stage, and then Spanish steps going down into the garden. Ms. Rand had designed her presentation, which was to appear on the terrace, steps, whatever, with script in hand, and read a couple of scenes. I gather my father is down in the garden with these friends of ours. As she starts laying it on, (laughs) he wanted to shrink into the shrubbery. She comes out, she has her script, She is dressed in a white, diaphanous, Grecian, flowing something or other. And she was backlit on purpose. 
<laughs> the audience got much more of Ayn Rand than they ever bargained for. I don't know how much they concentrated on her dialogue. <laughs> I gather my father was mortified. He was just get me out of here. <laughs> that kind of I'll thing. do the movie if she steps yeah. out of the spotlight. <laughs> I wish I'd been old enough and had the presence of mind to ask him, why did you do the picture? That's a question <laughs> I ask everybody that was in that movie. I mean, I'm assuming part of for everybody else contracts and you're required, but <laughs> I'd love to know personally what made him want to take that on. Cause that is, as I said earlier, a bananas movie that everybody should see because it is so weird. <laughs> I want to extend that question to you. I mean, is there a Gary Cooper movie that you think exhibits his sartorial abilities the best? I almost prefer his earlier movies like Design for Living and Desire <laughs> and those movies because he does dress so well in those movies. The tailored clothing came from Hollywood and from London and from Rome. He just wears it magnificently. I was thinking of, I think it was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, where he starts out as this almost a country bumpkin, is brought to town and gets outfitted in custom-made suits. That's one movie where you can see a range of things. There's no movie, to my mind, where he mixes both the cowboy gear with the very sophisticated, elegant, chic, international tailored clothing. They're kept separate in the films. The feeling was that there should be a uniformity of image in the movies. You're either going to get one or the other. Mr. Deeds, you hit the nail on the head and it's sort of fun because it shows him things through yeah. that business. Yes. If you put a movie like Desire, which she starred with Marlena Dietrich, it just looked amazing in his tailored clothes. And then juxtapose that with what in many ways I think is his greatest movie and one of the greatest films ever made, High Noon, you can really see that he just apparently could wear anything with a natural grace. Don't know how to explain it except to say that he had a talent for it and he had these early experiences with different genres of clothing and so forth. It's just one of those magical things that some people just have that natural grace and style. I had a funny story. I was dating for a while, wonderful young man, Jody McRae, who was the son of one of the sons of Joel McRae. We'd been out to a movie together, very, very casually dressed. And Jody was dressed in jeans and was boots from the ranch. And my mother and father were giving a formal party. And my mother said, well, come on in and join the party. So we walk in the front door, they're having coffee. My mother walks by, greets us, come on in. And she looks down at Jody and she said, what are you wearing? And it was his cowboy boots. She said, go into Gary's room and take a pair of shoes. Do not come in the house with those shoes on. So Jody goes <laughs> to my father's room, goes to the closet, comes out. So now the two of us are sitting on the couch when some other guests, my father comes, sits down. Hi, Jody. Gives me a hug. Sits down, is looking at Jody and talking. And he looks down at Jody. He said, Gosh, Josie, those are great looking shoes, Jody. Where did you get them? <laughs> and Jody sort of blushed. They turned right red. <laughs> Bruce brings up a really good point, too, because Gary Cooper does not get enough credit for being a really good women's actor. I think of him in the same vein as something like Cary Grant, where 
so often, not to disparage the John Wayne fans out there, but John Wayne movies were always about John Wayne, even though you had maybe a Maureen O'Hara or a Catherine Hepburn, the movie is always about him. And yet Gary Cooper worked with so many equally dominating women, Marlena Dietrich and Audrey Hepburn, who wasn't dominating, but she was an equal star. He just excels with all of them. Not everybody could do it. Not everybody could pull that off. It's almost like ballroom dancing where he's there to support her doing all of these wonderful screen maneuvers that she's doing. But also he shows the strength that he has as an actor as well being an equal pair. It's absolutely phenomenal. Some of that goes into what we were speaking about earlier was his ability to be natural. It wasn't something put on. It wasn't something that he was in the role, learning how to relate to her. He really felt he was relating to whoever the leading lady was at the level that the story was demanding. To be a good partner, you have to be a good listener and you have to be reacting to the other person. And if you're all wrapped up in your own ego and, you know, God, what's my next line? Maybe that's what you're referring to, Chris. Yeah. So often, a lot of male stars want to be the A lead. They don't necessarily want to be part of an ensemble, or they certainly don't want the female actress to upstage them. Gary Cooper, Cary Grant was just able to be like, we're both stars. We're both equal. It's not about upstaging or taking somebody else's spot. It's about sharing that spot, which Joel McRae is another good example, too. One of the most interesting things about Gary Cooper as an actor is that he had something that you don't find in a lot of male actors. There was a sense that came perfectly through, perfectly easy, that he had a masculine sensitivity. He was able to appeal to both men and women. A lot of male actors don't have that. I'm a big fan of Clark Gable. Gable could do some very interesting stuff, but it's very difficult to think of a guy like Clark Gable in terms of sensitivity. Gary Cooper had that by the ton. The other example for me is if you've ever seen the film High Noon, there's the point which is in a way the high point of the movie where after Sheriff Will Kane realizes that he's not going to get any help in dealing with the outlaws, he goes back to the sheriff's office and he makes out his will. And then he does something very interesting. He puts his arm down on the desk and puts his head on it. And you get the idea that he's almost sobbing in a way. I want to ask you something. Do you think that somebody like John Wayne could have done that scene? No. And the answer is, hell no, he (laughs) couldn't have. John Wayne was the kind of guy that, give me a gun, I'm going to go out there and take care of these people, which was a fantasy land, which a kind of childlike approach to life. Gary Cooper as an actor was much more rounded and much deeper that he was able to see The reality of our emotion, not some childhood fantasy of them would be, but the reality of them. That's incredibly rare. Bruce, you really hit a nail right on the head. And that is one of the reasons that he was drawn to High Noon. That was one of the reasons he became such a close friend of Carl Foreman. Because after all, Carl Foreman wrote the scene. The allegories and the meanings of High Noon are, it's been talked about very much. And 
it seems to be more and more relevant today. And in fact, they're talking about doing production of High Noon because Carl Foreman had the realistic take on what was really going on. Not only the town of Hadleyville, actually taken from a Mark Twain story about a simple little town that looked perfect, a white picket fence and all that. And behind the scenes, everybody was corruptible and hypocritical. And they would say to the sheriff, ah, go on. Self, don't ask me for help. You need an actor with the sensitivity to portray that, right? That's the thing. Playing vulnerable is tough for any performer of any era. He's one of the few that exhibits it in so much of his work. It's also fascinating. We asked Wyatt McRae, Joel McRae's grandson, about this when we interviewed him a couple months ago about Hollywood is very invested now in retelling their own stories. We asked Wyatt about a Joel McRae biopic, if that was something he ever wanted to see. Gary Cooper, I mean, had an incredibly fascinating life. I'm curious, Maria, would you want a Hollywood biopic about him made? Depends on so many things. It depends upon why are you telling the story? As a matter of fact, just a sidebar, Joel McRae and my father were very, very, very close. In fact, I was born September 15th. September 14th, my mother and father and me <laughs> inside, and Joel McRae went to Santa Monica Beach and went swimming. Joel had one elbow of my mother, keeping her steady, and my father had the other, and they went through the waves and swam because we all love the ocean. Then we came back home, and she went into labor shortly afterwards. The McRae family and the Coopers in those days were extremely close. I know Joel had a, had a fascinating life. For me, it would depend on the approach and why tell the story. It was it Sam Golden who said, if, if you want to send a message, send a telegram. He didn't like message films, so to speak. However, every movie has a, a story and has a message. I don't know. I know why it said that Hollywood would never ask for a Joel McRae biopic because there's nothing salacious in his life to <laughs> profit off of. And I was like, fair. That's fair. That's probably a better option. You're very right that as somebody who we do a show looking at old Hollywood biopics, it really does depend on what they're choosing to focus on and why they're telling it and if they even know the real person, which has happened. I come from a family of absolutely no note. And even I would be hesitant to let anybody even try to write something about my family. It's just too sensitive. Well, number one, no family's perfect. Everybody is human. And don't tell me mm -hmm. that whatever is human can be written about and described and make a hell of a good scene or three or, or, or 20. I was just speaking the other day with a friend of mine who's very close to Diane Cannon. I gather the biopic on Cary Grant is just superb. We're hoping to see that soon. We haven't seen the series yet. Cautiously optimistic. I gather you're in for a treat because everything about Cary Grant, it seems from what I've heard, is handled so well and is with such good taste. If you're a person, Bruce, good taste is probably your middle name, Bruce. <laughs> what I was thinking of while you were talking is that I remember a couple of years ago, there was a biopic about Sinatra, and I thought it was just incredibly bad. That's most, that of, most the of them. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> was so bad, I'm not even sure why it was bad. I don't know what the intentions were. Frankly, if somebody decided to do a biopic of Gary Cooper, the approach would be that he was really the most modern of 
actors of his time, you could make a very good case that his acting style and his approach, his persona on the screen and all of that foreshadowed the sensitive young men that came along in the 1950s, Brando and Dean and Montgomery Clifford. They all took different approaches to that kind of a persona, but they all had that masculine sensitivity. And to my mind, that goes directly back to Gary Cooper. Bruce, it's funny you mentioned that. It just reminded me when my father was shooting High Noon, he came home one day and he said, there's this young kid. It's like he's following me all around <laughs> on the set. Is that right? Off the set. And he's sort of standing watching me and observing. And it was Jimmy Dean. Oh, my goodness. Wow. You never told me that. That's wonderful. Wow. I, I, I forgot that story. That's incredible. It. <laughs> that just goes to prove my little theory about that. It's that's not a that's theory. wonderful. It's a fact. I think it's- oh, boy. That is really interesting. That kind of approach to act, the natural style of acting, which is only natural because there's an awful lot of skill involved in it and talent. There's a strain of that runs through the history of film. And Gary Cooper is right up at the top of that. I've never really done the research to try to make a case for it in terms of the anecdotes like you've just told me, but I really do think it's there that he was the sensitive masculine man before these guys in the 50s came along. Yeah, you're right, Bruce. Very interesting. I know that I've been, to throw out another person, I've interviewed Julie Garfield, John Garfield's daughter, and She's talked very heavily about how De Niro and all of them were inspired by John Garfield. So, I mean, it just all cyclical. It all builds. And now I'm just going to start trying to find out what modern actor could play Gary Cooper in a biopic. Not that we want one. You come on. There's no one. <laughs> there is no one. I'm sorry. Mm. I will go out on the limb. I don't know of one. I will uh, just say that. Let me ponder this. I'll come me, back to come back with neither. suggestion. Hey, you got to find somebody tall. I have a whole criteria there i will put this together there are too many people who don't belong on let a me horse. know <laughs> <laughs> i know you've probably been asked this a million times maria but i'm gonna ask it a million and one is there a favorite movie of your dad's that if anybody watches just one gary cooper movie this is the I one can't. they need to watch i can't nail it down to one honestly maybe five <laughs> we'll take five the obvious high noon Pride of the Yankees. I love that movie. Sergeant York, his portrayal of Alvin York. Sounds like I'm just going for other noted figures. He captured, he said he was so intimidated at the suggestion of portraying Alvin York, he nearly freaked out. It was almost beyond his capacity to say yes. Jesse Lasky convinced him to do it. The Hanging Tree is a film and Friendly Persuasion. Friendly Persuasion, the Quaker story. The Hanging Tree was among the last four or five films that he, he made. He played a very, very, very interesting character. He wasn't the obvious hero. It's sort of a shame that the very last movie he made was not successful. Every actor wants to stretch and not get pigeonholed. In this last movie called The Naked Edge, it was from a John O'Hara book called The Last Train to Babylon. The whole point of the story is that you have to believe until the last Two minutes of the film that Gary Cooper was a murderer. 
the audience wouldn't buy it from the get-go. It was doomed. And it was a good story. Deborah Carr was a wonderful actress, wonderful director they had. He loved the story. Didn't know it would be the last film. It was Sam Goldwyn. I read my father quoted, said this in an interview where Goldwyn said, you can let your audience down once, Coop, but don't try to do it twice. You can never convince anyone that Gary Cooper is going to be a murderer. It's the Cary Grant suspicion principle all over again. That's a wonderful testament to your father's character, though. You cannot be believed by an audience to be one thing. The worst of the worst is certainly to be beloved by your audience so thoroughly is an incredible testament to his talent and his character. And the fact that he would make his audience angry if he absolutely force himself down their throat as another persona. Bruce, what about you? I want to extend the question to you. Do you have a Gary Cooper movie that you're like, that's the one? I do have interested to hear Maria put Hanging Tree in her list because A Hanging Tree is a very underrated movie. The reason it is is because some of the minor characters are not as good as they should be. And maybe that takes away from the film a little bit, but Gary Cooper's role was just amazing in there. I remember there's one scene where the female lead says to him, asking about his past, something like, well, what kind of a person were you? And he says, I don't know what kind of a person I was. There's something about that line, that brief exchange, that always strikes me as being so real and so deep. I can't think how difficult it is to do a simple line like that. But boy, he just knocked it out of the ballpark. My favorite movie would be High Noon for a thousand reasons. Directing of it, the way the story is told, it has an early Grace Kelly in it. She actually does what's expected of her. In anybody's list of great Western movies, that would be in there maybe at the top. It certainly would be for me. And just one of the best movies ever made, period. He did an astounding, low-keyed job of dealing with some fundamental human questions and did it with grace and honor and a natural reality that I can't think of anybody offhand that would have done it as well. I really can't. There's a key moment and it passes so quickly. I often wonder how many people realize it or if it hits them, how important it is. The final gunfight scene, he has the draw on Frank Miller. He very easily could have pulled the trigger and Miller would have dropped like a stone. But he calls out Miller's name. Doesn't take advantage. There's the moral principle. You don't shoot a man in the back. Miller turns around. They both fire. That scene tells so much of a moral story, which I think the film does too. But... That one scene encapsulates what we lost today. You had mentioned earlier, I wanted to mention it too, that High Noon is just as relevant and maybe more relevant today than when it was made. I think you're right, Bruce. Very much so, which is both interesting and very sad. I have to champion his comedies because not everybody could be funny. Emily mentioned Design for Living, which is one of the saucier pre-codes out there, which I think is great. Ball of Fire is my favorite. It's Ball my of Fire favorite. Is wonderful. Yes. Okay. Oh my gosh. 
talk about starring opposite a lady that was not going to give you an inch, Barbara Stanwyck. And Dean Andrews. I just love everybody yes, in that movie. It's yes. great. How about Bluebeard's Eighth Wife yes, for comedy? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I still need to see that one. I have heard good things. Oh, it's wonderful. It, Absolutely. It is wonderful. For comedy, it's just wonderful. Bear in mind in the good old days when they're doing a scene together where they're having champagne and caviar in the story. It was real champagne and real caviar. <laughs> and apparently, it was very, very hot terribly hot Santa Ana type hot weather and retakes, retakes, retakes. And poor Claudette Colbert got violently ill. (laughs) They had to close the set for a day. Heat and caviar do not mix. That sounds horrible. (laughs) Exactly. It's a wonderful film. I urge everyone. One of the things did my father regret not being able to do more comedy. He loved it. I mean, he loved working with Billy Wilder. And I know he would have loved doing more Probably because he had a great sense of timing. He's a great oven. Yeah. I was watching, as I mentioned earlier, Design for a Living just today to watch one of my favorite screwballs again. And there's a scene where they're hiding behind a dressing screen. He and Frederick March are just doing these wonderful, wonderful physical comedy bits. And it's just so fantastic of comedic timing that very, very few people working today or then truly have. His face is so elastic, but his carriage is so regal that it's just Mm. this wonderful juxtaposition while in white tie and tails. It's absolutely gorgeous comedy work. Like you were saying, Bruce, about the naturalness, Emily brings up something that I appreciate too about his comedies is Ball of Fire. Dana Andrews is playing a stereotypical gangster out of a noir, and there's a fight sequence between him and Gary Cooper. And Gary Cooper is just acting like every regular person that would be in this situation he doesn't know how to fight very well they're tripping over each other and i know they said a lot of actors and actresses of this era really didn't like to do pratfalls like that physical comedy because they didn't want to look foolish the directors and producers really did appreciate the a-list actors that were more than willing to take a fall, be the butt of a joke. Ball of Fire is just, oh, it's a great one. And to make those kind of, in a way, obviously ludicrous pratfalls and so forth, but to make them seem natural enough and graceful enough to be believable in a sense. Ordinarily, we would say, oh, well, I mean, if somebody actually did that, they'd break their backs. But to do it in that natural, and I think maybe we could even use the word naive way, that we find perfectly acceptable, that takes so much more skill than we realize. I really do. And it may be in Gary Cooper's case, and Maria, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I don't think that he ever really got into acting lessons or anything, did he? No, 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 no. He never did. He knew how to fall off a horse. (laughs) It was just pure talent, purely intuitive in a way, which is so much more extraordinary, really. He felt if he learned a lot about the character prior to beginning to shoot the film, that he wouldn't have to, quote, act. He could understand what it was like to be in that person's skin and then react accordingly we'll wrap it up and leave it there gary cooper enduring style is available wherever you get books you should buy it it is a fantastic lovely addition to anybody's bookcase we had such fun getting to read it and experience it maria cooper janice 
Bruce Boyer, we thank both of you for sitting down and wanting to nerd out with us. We appreciate it so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was a treat. Maria and I haven't actually talked for a while. It was a treat to be with you, Maria, too. Bruce, the same, the same. I hope maybe we can do some appearances together. And Maria, you have Gary Cooper's <laughs> represented on social media. Where can listeners find out more? GaryCooper.com. Google him. That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. Of course, you can find Emily and I on all social media platforms. I am at Kristen Lopez 88. Emily is at Ms. Emily Edwards. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Reviews Matter. So leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And we are on social media on Twitter at Ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ticklish Biz. If you are listening via Spotify, please remember that if you are a patron, you can listen to all of our bonus content direct from Spotify. You can. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on to Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our But Have You Read the series. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And remember, every episode of this podcast, going back to episode one, is available at our archive, which is always free at ticklishbiz.podbean.com. Emily and I are both authors. You can order our books wherever you get books. We will have a new episode soon. Till then. <laughs>